this is the farm girl recounting her dream to the harem. Now, the harem is the uh, group of girls that Solomon is already married to. You see that uh, in verse 5 where she says, I charge you, O ye daughters of Jerusalem. And so the farm girl is talking to the uh, 140 uh, wives, wives concubines of Solomon. All right, look at verse number 1. And she says, By night on my bed I sought him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I could not find him. Or rather, I found him not. I will rise now and go about the city in the streets. And in the broadways I will seek him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not. The watchmen that go about the city found me, to whom I said, Saw ye him whom my soul loveth? It was but a little that I passed from them, but I found him, uh, but I found him whom my soul loveth. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her that conceived me. I charge you, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hens of the field, that ye stir not up, nor awake my love till he pleases. The Bible study tonight comes from verse number 5. Some version of verse number 5 is found three times in the book of Song of Solomon. And you could easily make the case that this verse is the theme verse of the book. The title tonight is this, Please Don't Stir Up Love. Please Don't Stir Up Love. This young lady tells the harem, she says, Don't Stir Up Love. What does that mean? We're going to look at that tonight. And I think that tonight's Bible study will be a blessing to everyone here and everyone that watches online. Let's pray together. Lord, help us as we recount uh, the events here in the, in the chapter, in the book. Help us, Lord, to have clarity in our thought and our understanding. And, Lord, help us to walk away with a determination, uh, Lord, that we'll be pure in our heart and our mind. Uh, Lord, when it comes to this area of romantic love, Lord, that we'll do it in a way that pleases you. Lord, we ask God for your blessing on the service this evening. Guide my mouth. Lord, help me to say those things that please you. And, Lord, if there's... Things that I would plan on saying that you don't want said, then put a guard as stop sign and help me, Lord, to be obedient to that. And then, Lord, be with those who are here that are listening. Lord, if I preach anointed words but they fall on deaf ears, it's a waste. And so, Lord, help uh, those listening to be uh, listening with an ear, ready to learn and listen and obey your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, as is important to do, let me take just a moment, if I could, and give you what I believe is the narrative to the book. Now, before I give the narrative, I think it's fair to just say that uh, there are differing opinions on how this story breaks out, all right? And so um, not everyone agrees with my account, and that's okay. Before I give it, I'll just say this. Even if you don't agree with the way that I'm going to break down the book or break out the book, uh, the applications I'll make tonight from God's Word, I think everyone in here will be in agreement with. So... Uh, be patient with that. But the way I understand the book uh, to be working here is that you have a, a young lady who is a farm girl. She works in a vineyard. She's worked in a vineyard her whole life. And because of that, being out in the sun, she's darker skinned than most wealthy girls. Back then, uh, pretty was defined by being very, very pale and very, very uh, uh, large because that meant that you were wealthy and you didn't have to work. 
and to be the prototypical uh, tanned, skinny girl, which is what is labeled as pretty in our culture today, boy, that was labeled ugly back then. And so this girl who's been out working in the field, Solomon sees her, and he sends for her and has her brought to his palace. The problem is this young lady is already engaged, and he wants to make her wife 141. Uh, I believe it's chapter 8, verse 6, if I remember the passage right, where it lists that he has 80 wives and 60 concubines. If you don't know what a concubine is, just real quick, and again, there's, this is PG-13 level stuff and up, all right? So just if I say something that may seem a little uh, coarse for a pastor, understand we're covering the contents here. A concubine is a woman a man keeps around for sexual pleasure. And that's just what it is, okay? And so uh, Solomon would end up with 700 wives and 300 concubines. And uh, so, so 140 women in his life. And this is going to be the 141st conquest. And she, by my strong opinion, wants nothing to do with it. So Solomon comes sweeping in and tries to seduce her very early on in the book, in chapter number 1. And she basically says to him, I'm already in love with another man, and you need to let me go. But he has her kidnapped in the palace while he's trying to win her heart. And so chapter number 2, which is what we looked at last week, I encourage you to go back and watch last week's uh, Bible study online. It was entitled, How a Christian Ought to Court. And I'm going to be doing that same Bible study again on a Sunday morning uh, here in the next few months. And so if you don't have time to go back and watch it, come to church on Sunday mornings and you'll get it uh, in the month of May. Uh, but how a Christian ought to court, and in chapter 2, this young lady lays out for Solomon her relationship with her fiancé, okay? And so the, the curtain closes. This is, a, this is a drama set to music or an opera in the Bible. The curtain closes at the end of Act 1, and then when the curtain comes back up, we have act number two, scene number one. So chapter three is act two, scene one. And here is the setting, okay? The scene is set in Solomon's palace where the farm girl frantically wants to leave and find her beloved, the shepherd boy. So she's in the palace. She's trapped. She wants to get out. She wants to find her love, the shepherd boy, and she wants to get married to the man she's engaged to. She's trapped in the palace. So from verse 1, I'm encouraging you to mark in your Bible who's speaking when because that's left out. Uh, that was not included in Solomon's writings here. From verse 1 through verse 5, verse 1 through verse 5, the farm girl is talking to the harem. And so if you have your Bible and you want to mark that in there, put parentheses around 1 through 5, the farm girl is talking uh, to the harem, Solomon's uh, wives. And then from verse 6 down through verse number 11, that's Act 2, Scene 2, uh, we have the harem's love and affection expressed for their husband Solomon. So the harem is speaking from verse 6 down through verse number 11. So 1 through 5 is the farm girl talking to the harem. Verse 6 through 11 is the harem describing their husband Solomon. Okay, so verse 1 through 5 is where we're going to begin uh, tonight and hop in right there. That gives everyone some context of what we're looking at, helps ever bring everyone up to speed. And so the young lady here has just woken up from her first of two dreams. She's going to have two dreams in the book. Uh, again, she's kidnapped and brought in the palace. 
Solomon tries to seduce her. She stays off the seduction. She's sent upstairs to go to bed. She wakes up the next morning, and she's had a terrible dream. That's recounted for us in verse 1. So point number one in the message tonight, notice the dream of the farm girl. On the back of your bulletin, your prayer bulletin, there's an outline that's filled in the blank. I would encourage you to take notes, fill in those blanks. Remember what you write, you're going to remember a lot longer than what you don't write down. So I encourage you to write down, you can make reference to it again, okay? And so the dream of the farm girl is verse 1 through verse number 4. Let's break the dream down a little bit at a time here. Notice letter A, the scare, the scare. Look at chapter 3 and verse Number one, it says there, By night on my bed I sought him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not. Now people who take my view of the book of Song of Solomon point to chapter 3 and verse number 1 as proof that she's stuck in the castle. You see here she's having a bad dream that she can't find her love. Now, if Solomon was her love, she was just with him the chapter before. And she went to bed and woke up the next morning, and she dreamed about trying to find her love. So clearly, uh, uh, to me, clearly she's out of place. And she can't uh, uh, f- find her footing. She's, she's looking for him. She's scared. And so in her dream that she's recounting to the harem, she wakes up, and, or rather, she's dreaming. Uh, she wakes up, she's recounting the dream, and she says, I was afraid while I was on my bed because I'm looking uh, for my fiancé, my love, and I could not find him. Uh, notice letter B, the search. The search. Look at verse 2 and look at verse number 3. And she describes to the harem how in her dream she's looking for her love and can't find him. I will rise now and go about the city in the streets. And in the broad ways I will seek him whom my soul loveth. I sought him. Notice the past tense. She's recounting a dream. I sought him, but I found him not. The watchmen, mark that word watchmen. I'm going to tell you what I think that means in a minute. The watchmen that go about the city found me to whom I saw, uh, whom I said rather, saw ye him whom my soul loveth. So uh, are you picturing this? She's looking all over the place for her fiancé, her love. She can't find him. And she's looking high, she's looking low, she's looking everywhere she can uh, to find her fiancé, but to no avail she can't find him. And so she bumps into what the Bible says are watchmen. And notice that's plural as well. Watchmen. And off, off to the side of my Bible... For watchmen, I have written the words police officers, police officers. She's found some police officers, uh, some folks who've been hired to keep the, the city safe, and she says to them, hey, have you found my love? Do you know where he's at? And they have no idea where she is. And so she's looking high, she's looking low, she's lost, she's concerned, and she can't find her love. All right, letter A, the scare. She's afraid. She's dreaming and she's recounting this dream that she had, that she's lost and uh, uh, rather her, uh, she's lost her love and she's looking all over the place for him. This scares her. Uh, she's searching for him. Letter C, notice the settlement. The settlement. Look at verse number four. It says, It was but a little that I passed from them. From who? From the policeman, the watchman. It was but a little that I passed from these watchmen, but I found him whom my soul loveth. Yay, she found him, all right? Um, It says, I found him whom my soul loveth. 
I held him, this she's recounting her dream, and would not let him go until, well, let's just pause right there. Uh, she said, I would not let him go. She said, I looked everywhere. I couldn't find him. I went and found some police officers and I asked if they had seen him. They said they couldn't, uh, they didn't know where he was. And I kept looking and shortly after I left the police officers in this dream, lo and behold, there he was. And she says, boy, I was so happy. I ran up and I threw my arms around him and I hugged him and I would not let him go. You can, uh, have you ever had a bad dream and, you know, you're trying to get somewhere and do something and all of a sudden there's the answer right in front of you and uh, you run and you get it in that dream and you can kind of feel your heart uh, what's the word palpitating beating a little bit faster right you're getting excited she finds him and there's a settlement there there's an ease there in her bad dream she's found the one whom her soul loveth. And I really, all this is really meant to set up letter D and then point number two, where we'll spend most of the time tonight. Letter, notice letter D, the sweetness. The sweetness. Look at the end of verse number four. And I just think this is so sweet. This is so awesome. She, well, let, let's just back up and read verse four. It says, It was but a little while, it was but a little, that I passed from them, but I found him whom my soul loveth. I held him and would not let him go. And look what she says next. Until I brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her that conceived me. She says, I took him to see mom. I took him to see mom. Now, uh, isn't this great that as soon as she found him, she didn't run from mom, she ran to mom. She ran to mom's house. And to the youth in here that are not married, whether you're a youth or you're older, if your parents are still alive and somewhat active in your life, let me just encourage you, involve your parents in your dating decisions. Involve your parents in your dating decisions. You say, well, my parents aren't saved, and so why would I involve my parents in my dating decisions when my parents are not saved. And I understand there are some situations where a mom or dad could be so lost out in the world and have such a broken view of things that maybe you wouldn't want to involve your parents in your dating decisions. But uh, for the most part, even lost parents who have life experience can give you a whole lot of input on whether or not a boy or girl is good for you. Uh, when my dad was a young man, uh, he was uh, saved and dating a young lady he had met at church. And His mom was not saved. In fact, his mom would die. My grandmother would die. And to our knowledge, she never got saved. But my dad was uh, dating a young lady named Gail. And my mom never liked Gail. My mom told my dad, uh, uh, she, uh, rather my grandmother told my dad, uh, uh, she said to him, she said, she's just not good for you. And my dad said, well, he said to himself, he said, well, what does she know? She's not even saved. She has no idea what's good for me. And so my grandmother continued to oppose and just say, I'm seeing some things in her that are not good in her character, and I really think that you need to move on. Well, my father got engaged to Gail and planned on marrying Gail, and sure enough, he left to go to Bible college. My dad was, grew up in Louisiana, went all the way up north to Indiana to go to Bible college to study for ministry. And Gail was going to wait for him to finish and they were going to get married. And lo and behold, the phone rang in the dorms and my dad picked up the phone and it was a friend of his from Louisiana and said, you're not going to believe what I saw. I saw Gail on a date with another guy. And my dad said, what? 
No, that can't be right. Oh no, I've seen her uh, flirting with this guy several times. I saw them on a date. My dad hung up the phone, he packed a bag, he got in his car, and overnight he drove straight from Indiana to Louisiana. And when he got down there, he caught her on a date with the guy. And he broke up with her. And then right after he broke up with her, her dad died. And so he stayed for the funeral because uh, he was friendly with the dad. Got back in the car heartbroken and drove all the way back to Indiana to go to college. Well, lo and behold, my mom had uh, been uh, had an eye on my dad for a while and been eyeballing him, but he was dating, and so you know there wasn't much she could do about it. And they sat next to each other in church about a month after that, just by accident, right? They came in and, and sat down, and my mom says it was an accident. I'm not so sure it was an accident. And um, uh, about a few weeks after that, my dad asked my mom out on a date, and they dated for a little while, and my mom flew to Louisiana to meet uh, um, what would be her mother-in-law, my dad's mom, and my mother-in-law, or rather my grandmother, spent just a few minutes around my mom and said, Tim, my dad, Tim, that is the girl you ought to marry. Now, my grandmother was lost, but my grandmother knew who was bad and who was good. By the way, a few years later, my dad was out doing a uh, backyard Bible club and just so happened to be in Gail's new neighborhood. Gail had gotten married and had a couple of kids and was living in a home there. And um, uh, my dad knocked on the door to invite the kids in the neighborhood to this backyard Bible club. And lo and behold, it was Gail's house. And Gail wasn't there, but Gail's mom was there. And this was Gail's house. And uh, she opened up the door, and my dad recognized uh, the would-be mother-in-law that that disaster was avoided. And the house was filthy. I mean, uh, piles of stuff all over the place with just little trails to get through and cockroaches running across the wall. And my dad said, Whoo! I avoided one there. I got away with that one there. I'm sure glad that I ended up listening to my mom, even though it was the hard way. Now again, uh, I, I say to this young lady, great job for taking this man in your dream straight to mom. And I have this written down in my notes here. Mother's house was a picture of purity. Mother's house was a picture of of purity. Now, some would read the end of verse 4 where he says, she says that she took him into the chamber as that being something sexual. Um, please understand that back then, people who were poor either lived in one-room houses or very, very small cottages. And so um, uh, probably this is not talking about she took him into mom's house to sleep with him. And let me just make this point. If you're dating, you're probably not going back to mom's house to sleep with your boyfriend. Right? Okay? So I don't believe when it says there that she took him back to mom's house and into the chamber where um, uh, she had been born. I don't believe that's talking about she took him there to sleep with him. I think it's saying she took him there to be with mom because there was a purity in their relationship, and she uh, wanted mom's approval. So we see the dream of the farm girl. What is the dream? The dream is that she can't. Uh, she's running around town, and she can't find her love, and she's scared, and she's looking all over the place, and runs into some watchmen, some police officers, and says, "Have you found him? Where is he?" And they don't know where he is. And she looks a little bit longer. And there he is, and she gives him a big old hug, and she's really excited to have found her fiance. And boom, straight to mom's house she goes and takes him to see mom, but wakes up and lo and behold, 
the whole thing was a dream. So number one, we see the dream of the farm girl. Now, let's spend quite a bit of time on point number two, the demand of, uh, to the harem. The demand to the harem. So she finishes off her dream and she turns to the harem, the 140 women who are married to Solomon, and she charges them. She says something to him, okay? To them. Look at verse number five. It says, I charge you, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hens of the field, look here, that ye stir not up, nor awake my love till he pleads. I want to take a few minutes this evening and I want to talk to the single people in the room and the single people that are watching online. I also want to talk to married people here who love to play matchmaker. I want to talk to all of you here. Some of you in here love to to pair people up and try to force relationships together. And I want to talk to you tonight uh, about some things here. Notice that she says to them, I am so desperate to be with my man that I dreamed about it last night. But she says to these these girls, she says, However, while I am this desperate to be with my man, I don't want you to go find him and force things. You let love happen naturally. You let love happen naturally. Now, I have this in my notes. I encourage you to write this down somewhere. The daughters of Jerusalem were in love with love. I'll explain that more in a minute. The daughters of Jerusalem were in love with love. Here's what I mean by that. You remember the first time uh, that someone had a crush on you when you were a child? Maybe some of you have never had anyone had a crush on you. I hope that's not true. Uh, but, you know, you ever found out that someone had a crush on you? How many of you know what I'm talking about? Okay, raise your hand. You know what I'm talking about. How did it make you feel inside? Some of you are too old to remember that. Amen? Yeah. That was a long time ago, Pastor. I don't remember when that was. All right. Um, um, how'd that make you feel when you found out that someone liked you and accepted you from the opposite gender? Giddy is a good word. I remember when it happened to me, and since I'm, I'm the preacher, you got to listen to me tell mine. Amen? When I was in the first grade, we were lining up for recess, and a young girl in the second grade, first and second grade, were together in our small, our small school. A young girl named Jessica. Jessica came up to me and she said, we, we were living, I was living in Mississippi at the time, and so she said in a sweet little girl southern voice, she said, I told my mom that I like you, and my mom told me that I should tell you, I like you. And oh man, my heart's going boom, 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 boom. This is awesome, right? And you know what? Five minutes before, I thought Jessica had cooties. But all of a sudden, when I found out that Jessica liked me, the cooties were gone. <laughs> Jessica was the prettiest girl walking planet Earth. I didn't think she was pretty at all before that, but because she accepted me, now I wanted to be with her. Well, how did that romance play out? We sat together that day at lunch while all my friends picked on me and all her friends picked on her. I ate half of her bologna sandwich. She ate half of my uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwich. 
and um, uh, we shared chips, chip bags, amen. This is, uh, this is real romance. And then we, uh, we went outside during uh, P.E., which was just play on the playground time, and we hid behind the tires during hide-and-go-seek together, the pile of tires there. That's, you know, kids in Mississippi, they play with tractor tires. Uh, that, that's their idea of fun. And so we hid behind the tires, and then when we got done with that, we went back upstairs for the end of the school day, and all those little knuckle-headed kids accused the two of us of having kissed each other. Now, Angela, look at me. I did not kiss her. I promise you. God is my witness. You are the only woman I've ever kissed. Amen? Other than my mama. Um, uh, but not in that way. Amen. Um, <laughs> so, um, uh, but um, uh, they accused us of that. And you know what? The next day when we got to school, all of a sudden I had cooties again and she had cooties again. The whole thing was over. Uh, but, uh, you know, we like being liked. We like to know that someone is interested in us. And these, these girls, they had married Solomon for all the wrong reason. They had stirred up love in a way that was fabricated. They had stirred up love prematurely. Now, I, I wrote down here, some folks get married for all the wrong reasons. They get married for all the wrong reasons. Some people marry for status. Boy, the idea that culture would tell you uh, that you're single, that's just terrible. And how dare you go through life single? Don't you know that uh, society label would label me as a reject if I went through as single? And uh, I can't be single. And I have to be married. And some people get so desperate to get married over this stigma that will be on them that they'll jump into a marriage with the wrong person and they get hurt. Why? They're not in love with the person they're marrying. They're in love with the status of being married. They're stirring up love. Some people marry for money. Some people marry for money. By the way, I would think with these girls who had married Solomon, that for some of them anyway, this was the case. Solomon was the richest man walking planet Earth. The richest man walking planet Earth. And Solomon comes at you with all of his wealth and prestige and makes a move on you and wants to be with you and wants to marry you, boy, you're marrying for money. How many of you have ever seen one of these celebrities in their 60s or 70s marry some 20-something blonde bombshell? You know what I'm talking about? There is no way that those girls love those men. They have nothing in common. But you know what they do have? they got lots of money. They got lots of money. Now, I'm sure there's some exception to the rule of what I'm saying out there. You know, where some girl in her 20s married a guy in his 60s and 70s, and she really did love him, okay? That's possible, I guess. But in most cases, there's no way it's possible. They're marrying, they're, they're, they're stirring up love. Some marry for money. Some marry for fame. Some marry for fame. I would guess that some of these girls married Solomon because he was famous and they wanted fame. Now, this one might apply more to men than women, although in today's society uh, that might not be true anymore. But some folks get married just for sex. That's, that's the only reason why they got married. They want to have sex and they want to do it within the, the confines of, of marriage to do it God's way. And so they jump into a marriage and they're, they're stirring up love because they're looking for a, a sex partner. Someone they can sleep with. And uh, saw, or rather, uh, the farm girl tells the harem, she says, stir not up love. Don't do it. Don't be in love with love. Boy, let love happen on its own. And then I put this one down. 
and I know that this one's a little bit touchy, and so I'll be careful here, but some folks marry for companionship, for companionship. And when I put down companionship, let me just say this here. There's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with sex. That's something God created, and it's beautiful in God's way. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago where we said that the, the place for sex is within marriage and only within marriage. And the purpose of sex, we laid out four purposes of the sexual act between a man and a union, a man and a woman. I don't have those four in front of me here, but partnership was one of them. And uh, this is part of what God gave us. It's beautiful in God's way and in God's time and in God's structure and in God's order. But listen, if this is your marrying for this and not because love happens organically on its own, then that's the wrong reason. Here's what I put down in my, in my notes here next to companionship. Learn contentment first. Learn contentment first. Now, what does that mean? I hope everyone in here that's single right now is listening very, very closely to what I'm about to say. I hope you're listening. And I mean single and never been married. Okay, listen closely. Contentment is not this, I have to be okay with being single for the rest of my life. That's not what that means. What is contentment? Contentment is this. And by the way, this applies to contentment across the board, no matter who you are or what level of what you're dealing with with contentment. But specifically to single people, contentment is saying, Lord, I'm okay with being single until you're ready for me to be married. I'm okay to be single until it's your time. I'm not okay with being single for the rest of my life. But I am content to wait for your timing, God. And I will live today content as a single man or a single woman. I will live today content to be on my own and walking with you. And you know what? If you'll live your life that way, where you are content with being single, then God very, very well may lead that person into your life just because he sees you've passed the contentment test. Here's the truth. I deal with a lot of people in my office who are desperate to get married. Oh, I deal with a lot of them. I've, I've had, I would guess, probably 10 to 15 people in my five years as a pastor come into my office heartbroken that they're single. And my heart hurts for them because I want for them to find what they want. But can I tell you, oftentimes what I see with people, they're stirring up love. They're trying to force it before it's God's time. And here is the advice I give every single time. Learn to be content single right now. And learn to trust God's time. And when you learn to accept contentment, then very well may be that God leads that person right in your path because you've passed the test. But here's the reality. If he doesn't, you'll be okay. You'll be okay. Because you've learned to accept contentment. You've learned to accept contentment. I'll give you a parallel example of this. We may not get to point three tonight, but that's okay. When Angela and I lived in Maryland, we made a very humble income. Uh, we worked at a church right before we moved to here. We worked at a church. I won't tell you exactly what we made, but I will tell you this. I'll be... I'll be very um, generic. We made less than $25,000 a year. That was our salary. Uh, but one of the perks that was added to our base pay uh, was that the, one of the deacons in the church provided us a house to live in for free. And it was a tiny little house in a not-so-great part of town. Right across the street from our house was a liquor store. 
And so we saw drunk people park and go in and get their beer. We were always afraid they were going to back into our car driving inebriated, right? Uh, but um, it was a struggle. It was a small house, and it wasn't what we wanted. We'd been married for 10, 11, 12 years, and in our hopes and in our timing, we would have already bought a house, our own first house at this point, and we had it. And I have to tell you, there was a little bit of discontentment in my heart and in my wife's heart and a little bit of a struggle that we had to live there. And I remember wrestling uh, with this thing with the Lord that, you know, we, um, we've been serving God in full-time ministry and really getting uh, underpaid and not paid very well and just having to scrape by and live paycheck to paycheck. I can remember times in our uh, early on in ministry where uh, and the only way to pay our bills was to take out a credit card and pay uh, a high interest credit card and pay the bills. And we would bounce back and forth in and out of credit card debt. It was a real struggle. And we just didn't have any money, real money in savings to be able to buy a house, much less we didn't know how long we were going to live in Hagerstown. And so why would we buy a house there if we didn't even know that was where we were going to be uh, long term? We knew the pastorate for me, uh, senior pastorate, was in our future. And we were living in this house, and it was a discontentment struggle for both me and my wife. And we both really wrestled with this thing. And I remember one day I sat down with Angela and I told her, I said, here's what the Lord has showed me uh, through the Spirit of God. He has showed me that we don't have to be content living in this house forever but we do have to be content living in this house right now. And if we'll be content living in this house until God provides something greater, then when when we get that lesson down, He'll provide something greater. Lo and behold, both Angela and I got to a place where we said to God, we're okay living here. Yeah, it hurts our pride to have to live in such a humble abode and you know, uh, not, a not-so-nice part of town, but we came to a place where we both accepted it and and uh, embraced it, and uh, quit complaining about it, and quit having a bad attitude about it, and quit, we quit being desperate to get out of there, and shortly thereafter, God provided for us the pastorate position here at White Oak Baptist Church, and now we own our own home. You see how God works? But if God had never provided a nicer place, we would have been okay, because we had come to grips that we were going to trust God's timing. I hope you get this right here. Contentment is trusting God's timing. Would you write that down in your notes? Contentment is trusting God's timing. It's not saying that I'm going to be okay with my status for the rest of my life. It's I'm going to be okay with my status until God decides to change things. What is this young lady saying? She's saying, yes, I'm away from my fiancé. Yes, I don't have him. Yes, I don't know when we're going to be reunited, but don't stir love. Don't stir up love when I think of a young lady who stirs up love. I think of uh, teenagers dating, specifically 13-year-old girls. You know, they're in this relationship and they're in that relationship. and They're jumping from one guy to another like, you know, a different flavor of ice cream each month, right? And... Uh, I like this boy, now I like this boy, and, or maybe a teenage boy. I like this girl, and I like this girl, and they're stirring up love. Uh, if you didn't hear the Bible study last week, let me just reiterate this. I don't think it's wise for teenagers, especially young teenagers, to date. If you're a mom here and you have, mom or dad here, you have uh, children that are preteen and under, 
boy, uh, don't stoke the flames of, well, do you like her? Do you like him? Why are we putting that in our kids' heads? Why are we playing this game with them? When I was a young man in youth group, my uh, youth pastor gave me some logic that hit me, hit, hit me right in my heart and stuck with me. He said, uh, I, he said this, he said, I believe I know why the divorce rate amongst Christians is so high. He said, Christian teenagers at 13, 14, 15, 16, sometimes even as young as 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, watch, here's the pattern. They, uh, they, they like someone, there's nothing wrong with that, that's natural, that's normal. They turn it into a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship where they claim ownership of each other. They, uh, they fall in love. Do you know a 13-year-old can't possibly fall in love with someone? They're still trying to figure out what love is. But they think they found their life partner at 13. I wonder, is there anyone in here that's married to the man that they started dating at 13 in the room? Anybody? Not a single hand. Look at that. Uh, how many of you were, um, how many had a boyfriend or girlfriend at 13 and thought, this is the one? This is it? Okay, nobody in here. Good. I've met 13-year-olds that are that way. But then you know what happens is you, you, you develop this boyfriend, girlfriend, and then things start to go wrong. And what do they do? They, before they break it off, they start looking at the field to see who else is out there. And then when they found their next hunt, they break it off here, and then they start pursuing here. Date, breakup. Date, breakup. Date, breakup. Date, breakup. What happens when we get married now that we're in this pattern of date, breakup, date, breakup? Now we met a boy or a girl, depending on the gender. We met someone uh, that uh, we, we get along with long enough to tie the knot with, but then a big problem comes into the marriage. Anybody in here that's been married for any length of time, you know that there's eventually going to be a huge Problem and struggle in your marriage. It happens in every single marriage. Every marriage has that big time in your uh, uh, marriage where it really tests the strength and bond of your marriage. Angela and I had it. Uh, in fact, every couple I've ever talked to, if you ask them, they can say, yep, we've had those low moments. And you know what? If you're in this pattern of date, breakup, date, breakup, what's keeping you from running to a divorce lawyer? Now, again, I'm sharing with you my opinion on some level. But this young lady said, let's not stir up love. Let's not force it. Let's not force it. Let's let love happen naturally. Let's let it happen in God's time. So I made a decision as a 12, 13-year-old boy. I'm not going to have a boyfriend or girl. I'm not going to have a boyfriend ever, amen. But I'm not going to have a girlfriend. Um, I'm not going to have a girlfriend until I'm um, uh, out of high school and I'm old enough to actually take care of a girl and be married to her, and so I just made that decision. Now, lucky for me, I never had a girl interested in me in high school, so that didn't really have to be tested. I actually had one, and but uh, we, we didn't date. We liked each other, but we never expressed it or talked about it. We didn't date until we got into college. We dated for three months, and that broke off. And then I met this pretty girl down here, and we got married um, a, a couple of years later. And so praise God for that. But let me just say here that tonight, parents, do not push your children toward dating relationships. No, 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 no. Don't stir up love. You let those things happen on their own. And to the adults in the room tonight, let me just say this. Hey, God does not need you to run around and be Dr. Love Matchmaker. 
It's okay to take a single man and a single woman and introduce them to each other. But after that, you let God guide their steps. Let's not force it. I've been guilty of trying to play matchmaker before. And you know what? Usually when I try to do that, it doesn't work. We need to let God, we need to let God direct steps. We need to let love happen on its own. Uh, Is there anything wrong with marrying someone and financial security being involved in that? No. Is there anything wrong with uh, enjoying the status of being married? No. Is there anything wrong with looking forward to sex in marriage? Absolutely not. Is there anything wrong with looking forward to companionship in marriage? No. But those should be uh, benefits that come along with a natural love, not something that you're, you, you finish with. I'll, I'll end with this illustration here. Uh, years ago, I knew a young lady. I, I knew a young lady who uh, lived with her parents. And she was in her 20s and didn't have the financial wherewithal to move out on her own. But could not stand her parents. She was miserable in her home. She had been raised in church and she claimed to be saved. And a man came into her life and this man was still married but had been away from his wife for 10, maybe 12 years. And uh, she justified being with this man. She justified being with this man uh, because um, he, um, he, he, you know, he was technically married but she kind of said, well, you know, he's not really married even though he was. And so she moved in with him, started living with him. She was not willing to admit this, but anyone who was fair-minded could look at it and see what was going on. She was giving him sex, and he was giving her an escape out of the house. You know, another base way to put that is prostitution. She was stirring up love. He was stirring up love. That wasn't coming naturally. That wasn't coming naturally. Now, God has a way and a plan, and we need to trust it. We need to trust it. Um, I, I'll stop there. I have a couple more things I want to add to that. But, friends, let's not be guilty of this. Let's let things happen on their own. If you're here tonight and you're married, be content in your marriage. Um, Solomon said that you are to rejoice in the wife of your youth. That doesn't mean you rejoice as long as she's youthful. That means you rejoice in the wife of your youth. The woman you married, you rejoice that you're married to her. If you're a woman here and you're married, rejoice in your husband. Uh, Love him. Be devoted to him. Be dedicated to him. If you're here and you're single, then you be content with the Lord with being single. And you walk with a pure heart and a pure mind. Let's not stir up love. All right, let's, let's stand to be dismissed tonight. We'll look at point number three, and we'll look at Solomon making his entrance for his second seduction in verses 6 through 11, and the harem um, describing that to us. We'll do that next week. I hope you enjoyed the Bible study tonight. I hope it was an encouragement to you.